Hey, before we get started, I just want to say um, this has been a fun preparation for this. This has been an idea that has been in the works for over a year, uh, having a student take over Sunday. Um, obviously, I'm passionate about students. It's kind of my job, you know. But um, And so just super, super awesome. And so just huge thank you to all the students and volunteers working behind the scenes to make this happen. Uh, couldn't have done it, done it without y'all. Um, so what I try to do every week when I teach students is I remind them, hey, listen, sometimes when we preach God's word, it may feel like this was specifically written to target you. And let me just say that is not the case. Um, and so with that said, uh, if you have any thoughts, if you have any questions or disagreements with anything I say today, I'll be standing right here at the end of the service. Come ask. Love to have a conversation with you. Um, let me know. So um, let me pray, and then we'll jump in. God, we do just thank you for this morning and just the ability to be here and take time to read your word and listen to your truth, God. I just ask that this time would be a time that it's your time. It's not my time. It's not anyone else's time. And that your truth would just flow through me. And I just want each person in this room to take a moment and pray for yourself and pray and ask God that he would show you something today. And then I ask that you would please pray for me as we start this time. God, we do just, again, thank you. Same we pray. Amen. So, I want to start this morning off by telling you all a little story about a guy named David Webb. Uh, David Webb is a former CIA assassin, and the reality is I don't know a lot about the CIA. It's a big organization that deal with a lot of things way above my pay grade, right? And so, but David, but what we do know about certain organizations like CIA is they tend to try to cover things up, right? They have this, uh, when there's a, a threat or something, they try to cover things up. And so that was David's role. His role was to eliminate threats against the CIA. If somebody was going to, who had information that could hurt the CIA and its reputation, he would eliminate those threats. And so, which is just a really nice way of saying he kills people, right? And so as he is, thanks dad. Um, that's my parents, by the way, my dad just laughed. So thank you. So as, as he is on a mission, he's about to eliminate, kill somebody. And he notices the person's kids in the room. And in a moment of guilt, he decides not to. And in his escape, he gets shot twice in the back. He survives. But of course, there was physical pain. Duh, you just got shot in the back twice. But also the mental and emotional pain. You see, the trauma of this experience forced him into a short-term amnesia to where he completely forgot who he was and who he worked for. And so during this time, the CIA has thought that he's gone rogue. They don't know where he is. And so they do what they do best, right? They try to cover it up. And they send people, person after person, and and they they send all these attempts to try to eliminate David Webb, and he gets away from each and every one of them. And to this day, no one knows where David Webb is. And I know what you're thinking, like, Elijah, how do you know this story? Here's the reality. You also know this story because I'm actually talking about Jason Bourne, 
So Jason Bourne was the name the CIA gave him. David Webb was his real name. And if for my middle school boys in the room who take me literally, this is a joke. That's not a real story. I, ju I just got to clear that up because they're going to leave me. Do you ever do my youth pastor told me? Right? It's going to be. So, so anyways, one of my favorite movies, fate, one of my favorite film series of all time, the Bourne series. So I just told you the plot to the Bourne identity, okay? That's not a real story. So the reason I tell you this story is because a movie like this is super fun, right? We see the CIA try over and over and over to, to cover something up, and they shoot themselves in the foot, and they just keep digging a bigger and bigger hole as Jason Bourne keeps getting away every single time. And I think as people, it's easy to look at things like the CIA or politicians or whatever and say, man, look at those people. They just can't be honest. They're constantly trying to control their reputation, or they struggle with perception management. And that's what we're talking about today, perception management. And the definition of that is trying to manage the way others perceive you, or controlling your reputation. And while we as people can look at these organizations and call them out, we fail to recognize that we do this all the time. No one in this room is immune from perception management, even myself, right? This whole week, the past few weeks as I've been prepping, student Sunday's coming up. It's going to be awesome. I got to wear my Jordans. It's going to look cool, you know. Man, I got to be that cool, hip student minister, you know. Just wait. And it was like, man. And then the Lord was like, what are you doing? I was like, man, the enemy is crafty, isn't he? And, and this is something I have to give to God each and every day this is something I struggle with. And let me just say, perception management, in my opinion, is one of the biggest threats to the church. Not just this church, the church as a whole in America. Because it breeds inauthenticity. And inauthenticity is the polar opposite or the antithesis, if you're a fancy word person, to the gospel. And, 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 and I'm not surprised that we have a generation who want nothing to do with church because the church has been dealing with perception management. And let me just say, in a room of this size, I know that we've probably got a few different backgrounds of people when it comes to perception management. There's probably some people in this room that you've been on the receiving end of this. Maybe it was a different church or, or, or even this church in the past with different leadership. And let me just say the current leadership, I can honestly say of this church seeks to not allow perception management to be in the driver's seat of what we do here. But maybe in the past you brought something up, maybe something heavy, something hard, a thought you had, a pain you had, whatever, and they went, shh, 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 no, 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 I'm just going to sweep it under here and keep it right there. And if that's you, I want to say thank you for being here this morning. I'm glad you're here. That's not the gospel. And some of you maybe have grown up in church your entire life and have lived in a family, parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, that all they did was focus on, hey, let's just show up. Sundays, Wednesdays, look good, act like everything's hunky-dory. But as soon as we get back in the car, we're screaming at each other. We're yelling at each other. It's just dysfunction. 
And maybe you have started to see that pattern in your life as you've led your family. And if that's you, amen, baby. Amen. If that's you, so glad you're here. And then I also recognize that there's some people in this room that God's already been working on this in you, right? He's like, hey, listen, let me take control. And you're already kind of wrestling and working with that. And let me just say, welcome, glad you're here. I think God has something for all of us this morning. And here's the reality to who gets to manage the way other people perceive us. You have two options. The first is you, which we're all really good at doing because we don't have to think about it. It's easy. It's what we want. I, this is what I want. But let me tell you, no one has defeated. I've not met one person who has defeated that nagging thought in the back of their mind of, if I do this or act this way, then so-and-so will like me or so-and-so will be jealous or so-and-so will fill in the blank. And so if that's you, it's exhausting, right? Our different circles, we're trying to be people that we're not, and it's exhausting. The second option is Jesus, right? And now you may be like, Elijah, how do I let Jesus manage the way I'm perceived? And we're going to talk about that this morning. And so we're, what we're going to do first, though, is we're going to look at Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 2. We'll be at the beginning of chapter 2, but we're going to finish some verses at the tail end of chapter 1. And then we're going to talk about four things Four things that show you might struggle with perception management. When I say might, that you do. But it's kind of like a gauge. You're like, okay, I'm like way over here. I'm kind of somewhere. Just kind of recognizing where you struggle with that. But we're not going to leave you there. Then we're going to talk about three active, simple steps you can take towards the opposite of perception management, which is authenticity. So, a little background, Romans, written by Paul to the church in Rome. So we've got two people groups here. We've got the Jews. These are the people that were born and raised in church. These are the people that had all the theological training. Uh, they knew everything, right? They were very religious. They were just around it all the time. It, just, it was just the way they spoke to one another. The other group is the Gentiles or the Greeks, a.k.a. just non-Jews, non-Jewish people. They didn't have this background, this theological training. And so what happens is you've got a church where these two groups are colliding. And as we all know, that can be messy. So let's look. Verse 21 of chapter 1. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile and their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And so what we're seeing here is we're seeing people who have basically said, I know who God is and I don't care. I want to do what I want to do. And God says, so go do it. And let me just tell you right now, this is a place we do not want to be. This is God giving up. Not giving up, but he, he's just like, all right, fine. That's not a place we want to be. Verse 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts 
and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And the next few verses, it goes into all these, it talks about unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, murder, deceit, gossiping, disobedience to parents, right? The parents are like, yeah, thank you for mentioning that one. You're welcome. Um, With that said, all of these things are what happened when we're not living within God's perfect design. And that's what we're seeing here. Verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Where do we see this in the world today? Where do we see people who know what God says and they say, I don't care, I'm going to do what I want, and I'm going to celebrate those who are also doing that? Chapter 2. Now we're talking to the Jews, chapter verses one through three. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you practice judgment on those who practice such things, and do the same to yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. And so what we're seeing here now is we've got a group of people, the Jews, who who grew up in the church, who are around this, and they're looking at the people on the outside, and they're saying, I don't want them here because they're going to ruin a good thing we have going because it could hurt our reputation as a church. Man, could you imagine what people would think if they saw us spending time with them? No, get them out of here. And let me just say, I think this is history right now. Where we're at is history repeating itself. Because we have a generation that wants nothing to do with church. You know, I I have this friend of mine. His name is Jason. He's from California. Um, But before I tell you about Jason, I've had this feeling, I, I call it a prompting of the Holy Spirit, that God's doing something. He's doing something big, and I don't know what that means, but I feel like he's doing something big right here. And I've told the students this, I'm like, yeah. And and, and so I was talking to Jason. I didn't even mention this to him, that I've had this feeling, and he and I were spending time together, and he goes, I feel like God's going to do something big. I was like, whoa. And he goes, my question is, are we ready for it? That's my question for you guys. Are we ready for it because here's what we've got. If you saw the movie Jesus Revolution, I know we've mentioned it a couple times in here before, but, but this idea where they were like, hey, the hippies cannot be a part of this because they're getting our carpet dirty. We're in a similar situation right now. We've got a generation that wants nothing to do with God, and I think it's because of the way we've responded to the LGBTQ plus community. And this is not a message about that. Don't hear me say that. And I'm not condoning that behavior. It's very clear in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1 that that is against God's design. That's not what I'm saying. But we as a generation have tried to point, to push truth on them over relationship. We tried to fix it with one conversation because we know more. And no wonder they don't want to be here. I'm not surprised. And we have an opportunity right now. And and, and here's the reality. And here's what we do know. And I heard somebody say this, that the truth sounds like hate to those who hate the truth. And, and, And I agree with that. But at the same time, 
if the truth has hatred with it, it's going to sound like hate. And so if we're spitting truth to people without a relationship with them, it's going to drive them away. And that's where we're at and what Paul is talking about here. Verse 5. I know you're like, but we skipped verse 4. Don't worry, we're going to come back. Verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you were storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And so what we see here is, is Paul telling the Jews, hey, all of these things, this is what you're acting, and you're not changing because you think you're right. You are being stubborn, and you have an unrepentant heart, and you're not open to changing. And because of that, you are just as bad, you are just as far from God as those who were actively speaking against God and celebrating it. You're no better. Verses 6 through 8. Who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, wrath, and indignation. So this is not a works-based gospel that Paul is talking about here. What he is simply saying is, hey, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and nothing in your life reflects that, if you are hateful in the way you talk to people and all of these things, then it's not going to go well for you. But if you're somebody that is obedient and sticks to and adheres to God every day, it's going to be okay. That's what he's saying. 9 through 11. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. And, and, and as I read this passage this week, all I could help but think is I'm a little, I'm a little Jew. Not, not literally, but I was the kid that grew up in church. I was the one who did a wanna in Bible drill, had all the books the Bible memorized in order, could, could quote scripture to you. When we did Bible trivia, man, my team was rocking it and nailing it every single time. And I was looking at people like this. When I was in high school, I had a group that I was a part of at my church, and I had people I went to school with, and they said they wanted to come to church, and I said, I don't think you should. Because I didn't want them to ruin what I had. That's not okay. Verse 4, the crux of this whole thing, in my opinion. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So what I believe Paul is talking about here is what is the most kind and patient and tolerant thing God has done for us? What is the most kind and tolerant, patient act that God has done for us? It's his son dying on the cross for our sins. The gospel. That's what he's talking about here. And he says, you're taking it lightly. You don't care. And what, what we're, what, when we act this way, when we think this way, we're basically looking at this cross and we're seeing Jesus hanging on it and he's sitting there with the nails in his hands that, that our sin is driving into his hands and his feet and the, cross, the, the crown of thorns is on his head and it's dripping with blood and we're saying, thank you, but I got it from here. 
ah, kind of a, eh, taking it lightly. And Paul is saying, don't take this lightly because Jesus did not take you lightly. When we struggle with perception management, when we focus on that, we have an unrepentant heart, the outcome is not good. So what I, what my, my hope for all of us today is that we just wonder, that we understand how beautiful the importance is of letting Jesus be the one who manages that. So we're going to talk about four things. We're going to talk about four things that show that we struggle with perception management. And again, that's every single one of us in this room, okay? Every single day. I have to take it to God every single day. And there may, I may talk about it in the morning, and an hour later, I'm doing it again, right? So let's talk about it. Four things that show you might struggle with perception management. Number one, you are always right. Another word for this, if you look at verse 5 of chapter 2, would be stubbornness or unrepentant. Let me ask you this question. How many of you like talking to somebody by a show of hands? You really, you're just like, I just love it. I just get a kick out of it. It's my favorite thing. When you talk to somebody who can never admit when they're wrong and who justifies poor behavior, how many of you just like, I love it, my favorite thing? Thomas, chill. <laughs> Thomas always messes with me. me. No, no, no one actually likes that, right? Now let me ask you this question. How many of you in your life have ever thought you were 100% right in a situation. Couldn't admit that you were wrong. Both my hands are up, right? Justified poor behavior. This is what happens when we try to be in control of the way people perceive us. We're always right. And the Bible speaks against this. In verse 5, right? You're unrepentant. You're hardened heart. You're always right, first one. Number two, you'd rather talk about people than talk to people. And I see this all the time, right? I see this idea of, of you've got a problem with somebody over here and you say, you know what, I'd rather go talk to this 14 people over here rather than go talk to the one person who can actually do something about it, right? And you come over here and, and, and we talk to these 14 people and we're like, doesn't so-and-so just, doesn't, it's kind of terrible, right? And they're like, now that you mention it, yeah. Now there's this, all this talking. And now, not only are we trying to manage the perception of ourselves, we're now managing the perception of somebody else. And what happens is we're talking about somebody in a way that is not edifying, that is not positive. And that is not what we're called to do. Ephesians 4 29 says this, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So the question to ask yourselves, go back, please, thank you, um, to ask yourselves is, is the way I talk to people edifying, does it give them grace? Psalms. 
Psalm 34, 13 says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. And here's the reality. We know that scripture tells us that the enemy is the king of lies. That's the only language he speaks. So if we're speaking that way, it is not a language of Jesus, and it is not Jesus who is in control of us managing our perception. Number two, you'd rather talk about people than two people. Number three, you fabricate your prayers. Man, I'm, I'm, this is one I've struggled with over the years, and we've talked about this in students multiple times on a Wednesday, and you know, just talk about this idea. We, 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 we have what we want and say, this is what I want, and then we go to pray about it, and we kind of doctor it up just a little bit. We're like, okay, I really don't like so-and-so. I can't stand them. Lord, would you just forgive so-and-so? That would be, man, just give me patience to them. I just really want to see them come into your kingdom. You walk back over here, and you go right back to where you were, and we think we can fool God. You know, the guy who's outside of time, we think we can fool him, and he's like, you're not fooling just be real. Like, he would rather us tell him that we, like, don't like that person, you know? And, and then we try to use these words, and we doctor our language. Even when we're praying around people, we're like, yeah, I'm going to use the big words, like propitiation and sanctification, you know? And we're praying in these ways, and people are like, what is this guy talking about, you know? And, and so this is something that shows that we are trying to manage the way we perceive to God and to people, Right? And so Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, and he says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. And when we struggle with the way others perceive us and managing that, our prayers are fabricated. Number four, you focus more on appearing holy than actually pursuing holiness. And in a day and age of social media, we post more about God and scripture about God than we do actually reading scripture. We don't miss an Instagram post, but I can miss my Bible reading today. It's okay. We focus, we show up at church on a Sunday or a Wednesday and we, for an hour and a half and we put on a fake smile and this is what has driven people away from the church. Jesus has something to say about this in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Second time he's used the word hypocrites towards the Pharisees. Jesus didn't hold back, huh? For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones. Well, that's a fun picture. And all uncleanness. So you, too, outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And what Jesus is saying is, I don't care what's on the... I, I, I don't want you focusing on the things that make you look holy. 
If that's your focus and you're not focusing on me, you're missing it. Missing it. And what I believe Jesus is talking about here is he's saying, listen, because of what I've done for you, I'm asking you, please don't be this way. You're going to damage so many people. If you do, please just follow me. Listen to me. Obey me. I know what you're thinking. Y'all are like, man, goodness gracious. I thought this was student takeover Sunday and the hip student minister was going to be funny and tell jokes. We're just getting hit with these heavy truth bombs. I see the look on my dad's face. He's like, can we go back to Jason Bourne, you know? Um, and uh, we're almost done. Hang in there. We're almost done. I want us to talk about three ways that we can live with authenticity, three, which is the opposite of perception management, right? When we follow Jesus, it is an authentic lifestyle, and three ways we can talk about it that are the antidote to perception management. And let me just say, these three things are hard. They're simple, but they're hard because it means not thinking about yourself. Number one. Confess to God when you are wrong. The first step towards authenticity is go to the source, the definition of authenticity, right? As we just talked about, if if the sign that you are struggling with is, is you can't be right, the opposite of that is admitting when you're wrong, but doing it to God because he's the one that's gonna be able to fix it. And when we stick with him, he's the one that can, we can even hope to change things in us. It's because of his love and patience and kindness and tolerance towards us through his son on the cross that we can, that we can admit when we're wrong. The grace of God allows us to talk about the things, the things that we used to not think that we could talk about. Not pretending they never happened. 1 John 1 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The answer is right there. So why don't we do it? Because it's hard. Number two, ask God to help you see others in the same way he sees them. You know, as I was thinking about this point and praying through this, I couldn't help but think of Logan's story when he went to Asbury and when he came back, he said, man, I can finally see people. And I'm like, let's go. Let's see people. Because when I, I'll admit, my first six months here were a train wreck. You can ask any one of these students. It was a train wreck. Because all I could Elijah's got the long hair and all the, you know. Just cared what I did, yeah. It was down to here. I know some of you can't believe that. But, man, it was just this focus on the wrong things and thinking these kids are just going to flock here because of me. And God's like, watch me. Sit down. I was like, yes, sir. And, and, and so I wasn't seeing people. And through that process, God has really helped me see people. And when I hear people talk about that, man, that is awesome. Because here's what happens when we don't. We objectify people. And when people have different political views than us, different views on sexuality, different views on religion, we are the Jews in chapter 2. We are judging them with an unrepentant heart. And what happens 
is just a big mess. A big mess. We have to see people, and the problem is, is we tend to see them by the outside or by what they believe that's different from us. 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees. For a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I, I think if we, if we were to do this, so many of our problems with people would go away. And you may be asking, how do I do that, Elijah? How do I get to a point to see people the way God sees people? You have to know God. You have to know God. How do we know God? You read God's word. And I know my students are tired of me saying that. I say that every single week. It always somehow comes back to, are you reading God's word? Are you praying? And I don't say that just to repeat it. I say it because it's true. And our student discipleship weekend is called Abide. And that's based on John 8, 31, which says this, where Jesus is talking to those who believe him and said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we must abide or dwell or live or saturate ourselves with God's word. If we're not doing that, we can't even come close to hoping that we can see people the way God sees them. Number three. Ask for prayer from others. And you're all like, boy, great. Thanks, Elijah. The first two are cool because I can just do it with God. Now I have to get involved with somebody with a face. And now what we have to do is ask for prayer and admit when we're wrong. And you're just like, no thanks. But, and I think the reason we shy away from prayer is because we're like, it's awkward. Yeah, it is. But the more you do it, the more it's not awkward. And we, we shy away from praying for one another because eh, it's uncomfortable. Eh, don't want to bother them. Don't want to make it their problem. Another crafty lie of the enemy, right? And what, what happens is we don't ask for prayer. We don't confess and nothing changes. And so I've asked this question to the students before, so I'll ask you guys. How many of you have in your life had an experience with somebody, a broken relationship, some sort of frustration, something, and you said, I will do anything to fix that except admit I'm wrong and pray with them. I'll do it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. My gosh. Thank you. We will do anything other than the things that we're called to do. Why? Because they're hard. James 5.16 says, this, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I don't think we understand how powerful prayer is. If we did, we would be doing it all the time. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to close with this. Students know when I teach, I can't ever walk away without some sort of a challenge for you guys. And as we, the band's going to come up in just a second, and we're going to sing a couple of songs. I'm going to be standing right here. We're going to have other people standing up here, people in the back to receive you for, for prayer. 
And guess what? You can take one of these steps right now. You can come ask for prayer. I will stand here, all of you, and pray with each and every one of you if that's what it takes. Because I know there's somebody in this room, at least one, probably a lot more than that, where God is telling you, go, ask. And you're thinking, I can't. What if so-and-so think, oh, wait. That's perception management. I would love, even if, even if you're in, the, I'm offering this to the AV people and the band. Morgan's going to hate me. But if there's a band person or an AV person that needs prayer, we'll, we'll figure it out, right? We'll play worship. My dad will come up and play the kazoo or something. It'll be, it'll be good. <laughs> a little, I don't know, something. It's a, that was a dumb joke. Please come up. Do not walk out of here today without not asking. Because we all need it. Let's pray.